Right now, we all might feel a little disconnected. For seniors living alone with smaller social circles, feelings of loneliness and isolation can feel overwhelming. But there's something we can all do to help. Connect with your older loved one virtually and have the conversation of a lifetime with StoryCorps Connect. Anyone can conduct an interview, and every interview will be archived at the Library of Congress, becoming part of American history. Connect, honor, share at StoryCorpsConnect.org slash AARP. A message from AARP, StoryCorps, and the Ad Council. Hello, I'm Keith Jackson. How many times have you wondered what would happen if you took the 12 finest race drivers in the world and put them in the same kind of an automobile and put them on a racetrack together? Who do you think would win? Well, it's finally been done in an international race of champions. Not one race but four. There will be three elimination races here at the Riverside International Raceway in Southern California, and the fourth race to determine the most versatile champion of them all will be run at Daytona, Florida. All on road courses, and to sweeten it, $175,000 in total prize money. Now, actually, a man, if he wins all three of these races, could go home with a bundle. First place is worth $6,000 in each of the elimination races. The winner in the finale will get $41,000 plus a $5,000 bonus for winning them all. So theoretically, a man could go home with $64,000. That's a lot of it. And of course, there is a ton of prestige involved because these are the 12 finest racing drivers in the world, and they come from the four major categories of automobile racing. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, everybody, let's buckle up for safety, shall we? We're getting into the automobile and we're racing around and it's a good seat still available. My name is Tim Hanlon. It's our curious little podcast, our little journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us and uh, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds. And um, we know you've got a lot of choices out there. And frankly... A lot of distractions, so, uh, just uh, preoccupying uh, your lives, and uh, we continue to soldier on in this uh, crazy world that we find ourselves in. And God forbid we can give you a few minutes of uh, of respite, a little bit of a distraction, hopefully some enjoyment to take your mind off of things. That's what we're here for. Uh, we uh, love to delve into, like I said, what used to be in pro sports, and that's largely been in the realm of teams and leagues no longer with us for whatever reasons. But uh, we, uh, we think we've got another uh, excuse, frankly, to kind of broaden our little uh, purview as we get into, finally, for our first ever episode, uh, into the world of auto racing. And, and why not? As you heard in that clip there with Keith Jackson, the late, great Keith Jackson of ABC Sports fame from the wide world of sports endeavor on ABC. And uh, that was him talking about what we're going to talk about uh, this week, as well as other stuff. With our very special guest, Dave Lockton, who you auto racing enthusiasts out there uh, should know as uh, perhaps one of the pioneers of the sport. Uh, as we'll get into our conversation with Dave in just a few moments, the international race of champions was his idea. Now, uh, it didn't uh, come to fruition until a few years uh, after uh, and uh, a bunch of other sort of things came together, including television coverage, including that uh, piece of uh of introduction from Keith Jackson, uh, we the, the actual races, the actual first ever international race of champions races, two of them, uh, began uh, on, on the Riverside International Speedway course uh, on uh, October 27th, 1973. Now, we're not sure if that 
uh, episode that uh, Keith Jackson was narrating occurred that day or the day after, which would have been a Sunday, the 28th, or the weekend following. Because uh, like a lot of these IROC races, at least in the early days, these were pre-recorded and edited for broadcast. But we're, we're pretty safe in saying that either in late October or early November of 1973, ABC Sports and the wide world of sports broadcast was bringing to the nation and frankly to the world the first ever series of IROC racing. And as you heard Keith Jackson discuss, this was a, a series that uh, lasted for I don't know, about, almost about 30, 30 iterations. I don't think it was 30 consecutive years, but uh, uh, it was premised on the idea of multiple champion race car drivers from various circuits all around the world, Grand Prix and NASCAR and uh, road racing and, and, and USAC and the Indies cars, all of them. If, what if they could be uh, competing against themselves in identically prepared cars and boy, oh boy, it uh, was uh, quite a curiosity. And, and Dave Lockton was the, the godfather of that circuit. Uh, and it's I ironic because uh, literally as we're recording this this week, uh, timely as today's headlines, Tony Stewart, the actual last IROC champion uh, of that series back in, uh, I guess it was sort of the mid 2000s or so, has uh, teamed up and has announced that with uh, Ray uh, Evernham uh, is going to create in 2021 this thing called the Superstar Racing Experience, known as SRX, which is going to be a six-race short track series pretty much predicated on this IROC formula, where the best drivers uh, from various fields will sort of uh, compete, in this case in short tracks, uh, with identically prepared cars uh, and a, a shuffling, I guess, of uh, – of uh, uh, folks uh, sort of behind the wall uh, to kind of basically uh, really make it focused and keep it uh, straightforward on one's uh, driving capabilities, taking the car, uh, taking the specs, uh, taking the uh, preparation, taking all those variables out of it and literally allowing uh, drivers to focus on what I think is a fascinating concept. And this is just frankly, just uh, one of the many uh, inventions uh, of Dave Lockton. Uh, and if you don't know him, well, you should look him up. Uh, a, a pioneer in racing, as I, as I mentioned. Uh, and the, the preface, frankly, to the IROC series, as we'll get into in our conversation in just a few moments, uh, was uh, another gigantic contribution that Dave brought to the mix. He was the first ever CEO and the founder of a, uh, a long uh, ago and a very revered uh, track. If you uh, grew up in the Southern California area and consider yourself a race fan, well, during the 1970s, you will remember the Big O, the Indianapolis of the West. Yes, Ontario Motor Speedway. Dave is the guy behind all of that. Uh, why do they call it the Indianapolis of the West? Well, if you look it up, and we've got plenty of imagery on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com, just search up this episode number 173. Oh my God, that many? Uh, with Dave, and you will see a whole bunch of that. If you're not uh, already uh, uh, subscribed to our social media feeds, uh, you'll find out all those feeds there for you. You'll see all the great imagery that we'll be posting on there, featuring this very uh, compelling, very similar to Indianapolis in structure and setup race course that for a good uh, 11 years or so was the talk of the town in the Southern California area and arguably was the facility that brought Many forms of auto racing, stock car, IndyCar, et cetera, 
to not only Southern California, but helped start to push all of those circuits uh, into national uh, sporting consciousness. And that is the preface and the prelude to the IROC story. Uh, amongst other innovations that uh, we get into in the sport of auto racing, IROC, Ontario Motor Speedway, and lots more with our special guest this week, Dave Lockton. It is a treat of a conversation. I encourage you to stick around because you're going to learn a bunch. And it's a hell of a lot of fun as well as we uh, get into auto racing finally, frankly, for the first time uh, on this little show. And uh, stay tuned for that. You will enjoy it. I uh, I just about guarantee. All right. Before we get there, a uh, promotional message from this week's sponsor, our friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Yes, Dean Mitchell in beautiful San Diego, California, chief proprietor of such. It is the best and most awesome place to get quality sports history collectibles like its name. Memorabilia of all kinds from teams and leagues and sports no longer with us for whatever reasons. All part of the grand history of professional sports that we like to obsess about here on this little show and beautifully uh, timed for this week, auto racing is no exception. And in particular, we just happen to find as we uh, tool around on the site in the auto racing section at sportshistorycollectibles.com, guess what? The first five programs of the first ever California 500s. Yeah, 1970, 1971, 72, 73, 74. They're all there. They're in beautiful uh, quality and uh, in condition, mint condition, near mint conditions. Uh, of the uh, inaugural California 500s that uh, uh, helped kick off uh, the uh, brief but uh, memorable life of the uh, Ontario Motor Speedway that uh, our uh, our guest this week, Dave Lockton, was uh, instrumental in bringing to life. Uh, all those and, and many other things. There's NASCAR stuff there. There's cart stuff there. Uh, all kinds of other auto racing memorabilia, including programs and, and guides and the like, and, and all kinds of other sports for that matter, too. All there for you to not only uh, peruse in uh, some great photography and to obsess about, uh, but also hopefully to purchase at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And when you finally decide to make that purchase, and I I'm pretty certain you're going to find something, you're going to be just, just, you're going to be uh, tantalized to no end to, to push that buy button. Before you do that, make sure that you enter this promo code, good seats. Yeah, good seats. I think it's one word or two words. I, I don't think Dean really cares too much. As long as you enter that promo code in there, and uh, you're going to get 15% off all of your purchases right off the top. So before you click that to buy button, make sure you enter the promo code GOODSEATS at good, well, not at GOODSEATS. That's my website, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com, of course. But uh, go there after you make your purchase at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. That's the website. Promo code GOODSEATS, 15% off all of your purchases. Fantastic stuff, including those really gorgeous looking uh, California 500 race programs. Uh, and what perfect way to uh, to celebrate uh, this uh, upcoming conversation coming up for you right now uh, with our pal Dave Lockton as we get into auto racing, our first dive into it, uh, the Ontario Motor Speedway. Uh, we get into the uh, the origin story of the International Race of Champions. Uh, everything old is new again, as Tony Stewart might uh, bring that uh, that format back. But as you'll hear in this conversation, it all starts with the uh, granddaddy of uh, auto racing locations indianapolis and that's uh that's where we're going to start and uh here's our conversation with dave please enjoy i guess for our audience maybe we could just sort of set the tone here i don't want to sort of categorize you because uh, you're a man of many talents and interests but uh i think one of the themes if i'm not uh completely off base here is that 
in many respects, you're kind of sort of the ultimate sort of uh, inveterate uh, entrepreneur slash inventor type. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, I, I, I had had trouble early on working for people and I always seemed to be uh, propelled into trying to test uh, an idea I had for something new. And, and um, that has led to a, a series of um, successive uh, companies that attempted to pri- pioneer something preferably in the sports and prefer- and always in the consumer uh, division. And, um, and I also find that once I find out uh, whether that idea was a good one or not, I kind of uh, am sub- subject to um, a new idea. And uh, so that's kind of kept me rolling along from one thing to another. And, you know, th- this, this, what we're going to talk about today was what really started me in that. Well, all right. So why don't we why don't we use that as as a as a great uh, preface to to how you got there? Maybe a little bit of sort of pre story into you know your life, your your education, your career. I guess up to that point, and and how you I wouldn't call it stumbled into, but how the sport or the fledgling sport, I guess, of auto racing kind of sort of hit your radar and became kind of your thing for this period of time that we're going to kind of get into. Sure. Well, I, I, it all starts obviously with um, being born in Indianapolis, Indiana, and you know you can't you can't uh, be raised in, in that environment without uh, developing a you know a real passion for motorsports and particularly uh, Indianapolis type of racing. And um, I I went to law school after I got out of Yale and joined a law large law firm uh, in their litigation department. Uh, and, uh, I'll tell you a little story about, uh, you know, my first connection with automobile racing there, but, um, uh, I determined that I didn't want to work for anybody. And I set up, set up my own shingle, uh, to practice law. And, um, the first client that walked into the door, uh, was a guy that had just moved, uh, named Chuck Barnes, who had moved from Akron and had resigned as vice president of public relations for Firestone. Uh, to set up a PR shop in Indianapolis uh, representing automobile racing uh, drivers. And he had three clients, uh, A.J. Foyt, uh, Parnelli Jones, and Roger Ward. Um, before uh, I, I flesh out that story, uh, I, I want to go back to what I thought was a, an amusing exposure to um, the racing as it was back in the, in the 60s. Um, Indianapolis Motor Speedway was a client of my law firm that I was working for, uh, Ice Miller, Donatio, and Ryan. And I, when the um, month of May uh, came, I got assigned uh, to two or three guys on the bottom of the totem pole uh, to go out to the speedway uh, during the time trials and uh, to um, sit in a motorcycle uh, with a sidecar and a court reporter at the hospital. And when somebody uh, was reported injured in the stands, uh, we would, you know, motor out to the, to the location uh, to take uh, a deposition, not a deposition, but a statement with the court reporter um, to protect from potential litigation. Uh, In 1960, you may remember the stands collapsed in Indianapolis and killed a lot of people and injured more. And our law firm was defending all those. And so um, back in those days, they got 250,000 people uh, to go to the time trials. They, they lined up, uh, you know, at midnight and, and uh, at the gates uh, for miles and miles to get the first seats because it only cost five bucks to get in there. 
And um, when I uh, arrived early in the morning, the stands were already uh, full. And, um, you know, we got a couple of minor things. A guy got his ear bit in the fight and so forth. But uh, around three o'clock, um, the radio crackled and they said some guy's fallen in the grandstand B and broken his leg. And um, so um, this was the snake pit, if you, if you remember and the original one. So you had about 80,000, 90,000 people in the infield that had been drinking beer since nine. And um, we jumped on the motorcycle and pulled up to the stand and the medics were just uh, starting to arrive. And we went up there and there was this guy in great pain sitting there in the middle of the of the alley. And uh, I the court reporter right behind him. And I said, sir, do you mind asking a few questions? And he said, no. And I said, well, you know, what's your name? And he gave us his name. And I, I said, now, uh, you know, Mr. Smith, I said, you've had a few beers, haven't you? And he he looked at me and he got red in the face and he started to swear. And he said, he looked at me, he says, you stupid son of a bitch, you young kid, whippersnapper. He says, do you think I would be this drunk on a couple of beers? Charlie and I have, have, have put away a case uh, by now and we're working on our second. And I said, thank you very much. And I told the court reporter, that's all we need. And uh, that was that was my introduction to the sport of automobile racing, and and uh, subsequently, um, you know, got very deeply involved, beginning with uh, meeting Chuck Barnes uh, in, um, in in um, 1955 uh, in my office, and and so Chuck uh, wanted to form um, uh, a company he called Sports Headliners. I incorporated him. And we started going out to the track doing PR, and uh, that led to me meeting the race car drivers that he was representing. And, and it turned out that most of them um, were um, uh, unrepresented. Uh, they had local uh, lawyers that were representing them. And, and at that time in racing, uh, the, the automobile race car drivers were, were kind of uh, just uh, hired help. Uh, they uh, were hired by the car owners who, who really were at the top of the hill, wealthy individuals that had companies that may have been involved in automobile racing or had uh, uh, owners of uh, Coca-Cola stock or things like that. And they got a, they got a, um, a, a draw, a salary, their expenses, and a percentage of the gate. Um, Automobile racing was the second largest sport in the United States at that time. I think it drew 40 million people, second only to uh, horse racing, where you know pro football was drawing six million. But it was it was kind of downscale. There were a thousand midget tracks and and uh, half mile and a mile dirt tracks at the state fairs and and uh, a downscale business. And Chuck Barnes um, had an insight uh, that proved to be very valuable to, to us and, and prescient, and that was that um, Goodyear had announced uh, in 1963 quietly that uh, they were sick and tired of uh, Firestone uh, running a full-page ad saying every driver of the 500 war, uh, drove on, Good, uh, on Firestones, and it started to secretly develop uh, an Indy tire in 63. Um, it, it, they had finally developed it in 65 when Chuck uh, left Firestone and um, we're going to introduce it in 66. And it dawned on Chuck and he sold me on the fact that uh, there were only six to 10 drivers that could really win the Indianapolis 500. They had no agreements. Uh, they were kind of free agents. They did uh, work for a car owner and, you know, had some loyalty there and they drove Firestone because that was the only tire available. And Chuck decided to uh, uh, form this company, and the first thing we did was to pit 
um, Firestone against Goodyear to buy the um, racers' loyalty uh, for use of proof of performance advertising, which was beginning to really uh, show that it was working in NASCAR and and uh, with Ford's entry and uh, Indianapolis in '65 and and um, my future client Jimmy Clark winning the race. Um, so. Um, we went into Firestone a good year for our drivers uh, one at a time simultaneously and said, you know, this is what we want uh, for um, committing to drive on Goodyear or Firestone. Uh, the first guy that, um, you know, agrees to that price and gives us uh, a contract, uh, we're with you. Um, within one year, we had uh, signed uh, about 10 drivers up uh, to uh, amounts that I still can't talk about, but made them the highest paid professional athletes in terms of earnings on January 1 before they ever turned a wheel. Uh, and, uh, you know, that launched us, uh, you know, well into sports headliners, um, uh, representing ultimately about 15 of the top um, 20 athletes uh, in terms of uh, annual earnings in the United States. You know, it almost sounds like it was almost like a, uh, I want to call it a unionization kind of thing, but it almost feels like sort of a, almost sort of the beginnings of that kind of thing with, with a, a group of, of sportsmen in a particular form of racing that uh, lacked representation generally, uh, collectively, individually, economically. That really is a good analogy uh, about, uh, we'll talk about the Ontario Motor Speedway and its genesis, but shortly after uh, that deal was underway. Uh, the, the 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 USAC board of directors was all made up of car owners, and now the drivers were flexing their muscles, and and uh, you know we were starting to uh, promote them and make them more a focus rather than the car uh, and the, the owners like JC Agajinian and and people like that that were well known. And um, at the Hanford race in uh, uh, 1960. Uh, Seven, I think um, the the drivers went on strike and uh, came to me um, and, and said that they were going on strike and that their demands was uh, were that I be elected the driver's representative uh, to USAC. And uh, right there, within a matter of three or four hours, uh, the USAC board met and I was elected to the board as the driver's representative. And um, it was it was really the power base that we had developed with the drivers that was uh, behind uh, in great a uh, deal um, uh, behind my uh, ability to pull together the Ontario Motor Speedway project was was extremely complex and would never have happened if we hadn't had uh, sports headliners um, you know first. That's that's very interesting. I, it's also I guess sort of this is sort of the even sort of the pre or the, the primordial ooze, I guess, of what would today be known as sort of sports management firms, like the IMG, IMGs of the world you and, Devers and all those kinds of folks, right? Exactly. There, Mark McCormick was the only other um, 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 agency like that at the time. He had uh, Palmer, Player, and Nicholas, and they, they probably um, were in the same category of earnings as, as ours, but there wasn't anybody else. So um, before we sort of get off the uh, sports headliners uh, thing specifically, uh, two sort of questions. Number one, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing drivers in sort of, the, I guess, the indie car, quote unquote, uh, sort of domain. I'm not hearing or seeing stock car racers or any other kind of racing genres sort of represented. Is that sort of by chance or uh, was that just the, the low hanging fruit slash opportunity given the Firestone and the indie sort of connections that you had? Uh, 
Well, I think it's because we were in Indianapolis. We wound up representing uh, um, uh, Buddy Baker and Fred Lorenzen and, and a couple of other um, uh, NASCAR drivers. But at that time, they they were even uh, you know further down in the financial uh, totem pole than than the USAC driver. You know, USAC was kind of uh, ahead at that time, uh, if you can believe it, uh, of NASCAR. Uh, they had uh, sanctioned many of those uh, dirt tracks and and um, quarter mile, uh, quarter mile and half mile tracks, uh, you know, the 1200 that were across the United States. So they, they were kind of the larger um, audience, but NASCAR was coming very, very fast. And as we know, it ultimately just left them behind. All right. And then before we get sort of a segue into sort of the next part of the the story here, uh, just two names that I've, from my crack research that, that pop out that were part of your roster that I just got to ask you about just, you know, quick thoughts. Uh, one O.J. Simpson and another uh, Evil Knievel. Different reasons. <laughs> yeah, different people, too. Um, well, O.J. came about because of uh, a Chuck. Chuck was an SC grad, uh, knew John McKay, uh, and he started uh, lobbying me. We, we, uh, I own 40 percent. He owned 60 percent uh, of sports headliners to take on O.J., when he was a senior in college. And um, so we did uh, and uh, signed him. Uh, and I negotiated his first contract with um, Ralph Wilson and um, got to be quite close to OJ, uh, tragically. And, and, uh, and uh, ironically, uh, he was uh, our spokesperson um, in a 30 minute infomercial uh, that my wife, Kathy, was our vice president of marketing and interactive network at that time put together and we were dealing with them on a daily basis, and it was running when the, when the murder happened. So, you know, we were right in the thick of that, unfortunately. Um, Holy I, mackerel. Yeah, uh, the, the Evil Knievel is, uh, is uh, I, we, we could spend a couple hours there. Um, he, he came to us and kept sitting in our lobby asking us to represent him, and, and, we'd, and we had never heard of him. And uh, I, I guess we'd heard of the Caesar's Palace thing, but uh, we just turning him down, didn't think it was a fit. Um, and uh, one day he came in and said to uh, Chuck Barnes' uh, brother, uh, Bruce, who was working w- with us, uh, look, I'm going to jump at the Cow Palace and do my act. And he said, uh, I'll give you tickets and fly you up there. And if, if after I'm done, um, you don't want to represent me, well, then I'll leave you alone. And uh, so Bruce came, Bruce came back and you can look at this and is you could see videos of this and so forth that he said, you will not believe what I just saw last night. He said, um, first of all, he said, when I took off to go to the Cow Palace, there was a Pacific storm and, and uh, the wind was uh, and the rain was horizontal. And I said, nobody's going to be there. And when I got there, there wasn't a seat to be had. And he said, and Evil did this act that I can't describe, but I, I was, uh, uh, you know, my heart was uh, in my mouth, and I've been to a lot of automobile races with my clients. But he said, when he made this jump, uh, before he made this jump, he he, he gave a, a long talk about motorcycle uh, safety, and he uh, and he took off on a rant against the Hell's Angels, which I guess he did, was part of his spiel. Uh, to tell kids that they were not role models and they were bad guys. And uh, so evidently, after he completed the jump and he comes back to take his um, bows, 
about 20 Hells Angels come out of the stands uh, with tire irons and are, are rushing him. And before they can get to him, Bruce said, the stand's empty. You know, there must have been a thousand people down there in a melee. And he said they took almost every one of those Hells Angels uh, to the hospital. And he said, Dave, this guy is from another planet. He is going to be one of the biggest names. Uh, in sport and we got to take him and and so we signed him on and and I got uh, to be kind of his personal handler for a long long time and and we can do a show about evil and at another time but he's one of the most uh, talented unique and um, at the same time uh, frustrating guys that I, I ever knew in my life. Well, he's going to play a role in sort of what our next gear shift, right? So uh, why don't you now set the table then for what obviously seems to be a pretty lucrative and uh, timely, I guess, uh, set of activities into uh, what uh, ultimately became uh, this uh, I, this destination uh, on the West Coast named the Ontario Motor Speedway. Uh, how, how does that sort of idea come about? And give us some uh, insight into the logic of that, and then we'll get into why evil plays a role in that uh, a little later on. Yeah, well, uh, we were trying to, uh, to get the... Um, um, automobile racing and the drivers kind of um, uh, raised up out of the the general situation uh, of the small track atmosphere and the hard scrabble uh, backgrounds and so forth. And, and the thing that was really uh, uh, impressive to me was that under the table, uh, the automotive industry, which is a fourth of our economy, was was heavily involved uh, in subsidizing uh, automobile racing. Ford got in at um, you know formally um, uh, with Lamans, the Ford versus uh, uh, Ferrari. They brought an engine to Indianapolis. Um, you had um, Andy Granatelli making a fortune out of STP through automobile racing promotion and. And here it was the second biggest sport uh, in the United States, and it was kind of down market. And, and so we were thinking of ways to lift it up, including a uh, made-for-TV race where the drivers could be introduced as uh, individuals and not just these guys that had names and that drove um, different kinds of cars. Um, when um, the uh, guy that backed me, Dan Lufkin, Adonis and Lufkin, Jen Rett, in, um, and his partners, uh, and, and, and Chuck Barnes in financing uh, sports headliners, um, their head of real estate, Don Real, sent me a package that he had received from someone about a failed project to build the, quote, Indianapolis of the West in, in Los Angeles. And it had some Stanford research and market opinion research um, um, and other kinds of um, market studies, uh, and uh, they had actually put together a, a, a corporation that was owned by Santa Anita National General and Filmways, and um, the the project ha- had failed. And I, when I read uh, about the 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 demographics and uh, you know and and the the site and all that, I I really said, gee, this this could really be big. I mean, Indianapolis is a small town. This is a huge market, the second biggest city. So um, I just got on a plane in October of 1966 after making a bunch of phone calls to people whose names that showed up in this thing. And I went around and talked to them and asked them about what had happened. And they had a site uh, uh, about, about 40 minutes from downtown L.A., which was the Cucamonga Winery at the time that they had optioned. 
And I came back thinking that what, what really uh, was needed was the cooperation of uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which uh, I could get through a friendship uh, with uh, Tony Holman uh, and uh, the drivers and, and, the, and the credibility that sports headliners had. And so I, I just put one foot after another. And, um, and uh, two years later, we broke ground on the Ontario Motor Speedway uh, with a lot of tri- trials and, and tribulations and surprises uh, um, that, uh, that uh, went into that. So it was, uh, it was a quite, quite an adventure and a lot of stories about that. But uh, what we really set out to do was to uh, lift the sport of uh, automobile racing by building the largest sporting facility ever built at one time. Uh, and to make it uh, the most modern uh, facility, whether uh, of any sport uh, of its time, and to uh, take on the challenge of bringing the four major sanctioning bodies that uh, didn't get along, um, uh, NASCAR, USAC, uh, you know, who USAC had stock car racing as well as uh, championship car racing, the National Hot Rod Association, Wally Parks, who was uh, kind of uh, uh, not a competitor of those, but a separate organization. And then most challenging, the uh, FIA uh, in Europe, who sanctioned uh, Watkins Glen, who had the Formula One race. And, and our goal was to have a second U.S. Uh, Grand Prix. So the, the track was designed for four races a year only. Uh, it had a, 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 a road track. It had a two and a half mile low bank oval, very similar to uh, Indianapolis. Uh, and it had um, um, the um, world's fastest drag strip where most of the world's records were set due to the way that uh, we um, laid down the asphalt and tilted the track legally and uh, and things like that. But it, it, um, it really um, pioneered a lot of the uh, the growth in automobile racing through uh, many of the innovations that we uh, introduced at, uh, at that time. So put that in perspective with, uh, and you sort of hinted at it, sort of where the, where auto racing kind of really was sort of in the, in the firmament or, or maybe not even on the radar of the general sort of sporting populace. Because I mean, the, the way I sort of figure it, and this is way this is very early in my life. This is sort of years where I wasn't conscious because I was, you know, born in 65 and, you know, but uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Indianapolis 500, right. You know, the, the, the pinnacle of not only that USAC circuit, but frankly, you know, the, uh, just a gargantuan event in an, uh, its own right to the point of being one of the, in an American institution, right. Uh, the Daytona 500, you know, frankly, a, a mere, shell of its uh, of what it became over time right but it was right. arguably you know the uh wide world of sports anthology worthy at that point right uh, uh attention grabbing race of the nascar circuit to the point where it wasn't even sort of fully but very much a regional kind of thing right and you're also Correct. describing you know the other sort of dirt tracks and all that kind of stuff right so th- you know this seems to be pardon my expression here, but a ballsy move, right? To kind of not only think, hey, we can maybe, you know, create yet another sort of super uh, structure, but then also what seems to be boldly ambitious to use it as almost a a semi-unifying environment to to get all these uh, uh, different sort of approaches to auto racing kind of at least domiciled in one place and and by the way, broaden the market geographically uh, as well, which I guess is, there's a question in here somewhere, national uh, <laughs> attractiveness, I guess, for this thing called television and, and 
you know, going beyond the roots, I guess, of, of where the fans generally came from at that point. Well, I mean, that, that was the intention. And, and when I look back at it, I, I quite frankly don't, don't know how we did it. I think, as you said, uh, we talked earlier about luck. And, I, you know, it, it, was, it was, had I known what, had to, what actually had to have been accomplished uh, to get it all together, I, I would have quit very early on. But I was 29 years old and I didn't know better. And, uh, you know, I, I had a stubborn streak and I just, I, I just kept plowing um, you know, together, but um, uh, uh, forward. But um, it, when, it came, when it came together, uh, it really did launch um, an explosion in the development of super speedways. Uh, many of them broke ground while, uh, you know, within a year after we broke ground, like Talladega and Michigan. Uh, and you know our introduction of the uh, the first um, uh, private stadium club where we you know had air conditioned, you had elevated up to it, and uh, very much like a, the best turf, turf clubs that you've seen at automobile racing. We were the first to use uh, suites, um, uh, hospitality suites, uh, other than uh, the Astrodome, which was the, the first one to have it. And one of the things that uh, you'll find interesting, um, Tim, is that we, we did, we, uh, as a marketing guru, we were the first people, I think, to ever perform market research about our sport and about fans and then particularly uh, about uh, the Los Angeles market. And um, it was quite surprising uh, what, what we found, much to our uh, surprise and disappointment based upon uh, the Economic Research Associates uh, uh, forecast was that there really were only 50,000 hardcore racing fans uh, in the entire greater Los Angeles uh, race. And uh, they showed up maybe once a year or twice a year at Riverside. Uh, that was their top crowd. And that the reason that there were only those were, was a perception in the Los Angeles area, and I think maybe elsewhere, that race car, uh, auto racing was kind of down market. Uh, you know, maybe a little chancy uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, public attendance, uh, you know, uncleaner, you know, old fashioned um, facilities. And most surprising was that the people, people were not interested in going to see something like that because they didn't want to see anybody badly injured or killed. Uh, and uh, up to that time, there had always been uh, a myth. Chris um, Economaki and I were the first guys that disagreed with this, that uh, it was the crashes, the bad crashes, and, and maybe every now and then a fatality that really drew people to automobile racing. And, and it turned out that it was quite the opposite. So we did two things at the Speedway. We really focused on um, building a modern facility that, that we were the first ones to uh, introduce safer or uh, impact absorbing barriers, you know, widened the, the, pit, uh, the pit lanes, uh, created a, a, a form of uh, crash fence that's now used every place, uh, and all kinds of uh, innovations and, and would speak about that. But Mainly, we determined that we had to make uh, the Ontario Motor Speedway the place to be. And in L.A. town and in La La Land, the, the place to be was where the celebrities and, and the movie stars were. So um, I, I, I created a, a, an all-star board of directors that had uh, Roger Pinsky and, and Briggs Cunningham to help me with Formula One and Barnelli Jones and J.C. Agajanian, but I brought on Paul Newman, uh, Kirk Douglas, uh, Dickie Smothers, 
And um, we really kind of promoted this around the, the movie stars who instantly wanted to, wanted to come and wanted to be involved. And, and so we, um, um, we developed a, a, a racing uh, a, a promotional campaign um, that um, you know, won many awards around that. And I can tell you more about that if you're interested. Yeah, it, did also, it also included, a, 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 for lack of a better term, a, a pro-am kind of race kind of thing, too, as a sort of a... That, that, that was part of the, part of the strategy, uh, was to um, uh, dedicate the, uh, the facility when it was uh, complete on August 5th, uh, two weeks before the time trial started, and, and I thought of the idea, I'd been thinking about a made-for-TV series, and I, and I thought about the idea of a pro-am celebrity race. And uh, so uh, we put together, uh, you know, a demonstration uh, for the 5,000 uh, uh, turf, uh, you know, the, the private, the Victory Circle Club, as we called it. Uh, we invited the Hollywood community and um, got the permission of the Motion Picture uh, and Television Relief Fund um, to uh, give um, uh, waivers to a whole bunch of uh, television and movie stars and, and created a, a race with uh, seven uh, you know, seven celebrities and, and, and seven uh, professional race car drivers. Got Richie Ginther to prepare uh, seven uh, 916s, um, um, uh, um, sixes, um, identically prepared. Um, and then, you know, put together um, a teams of um, 914 sixes. Um, uh, paired Al Unser with Kim Venturi, who was the U.S. Open champion, and and Roger Ward with Dean Martin's son, Dino Martin, and Bobby Unser with Dick Smothers. Uh, Dick was on our board, and the Smothers Brothers was the number one TV show then. And Dan Gurney uh, drove with Pancho Gonzalez and Mark Donahue with um, uh, um, Hugh Donahue. Uh, 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 Mark Donahue with um, uh, Hugh Downs. Remember Hugh Downs, who just yeah, passed just, away? we just lost Hugh Downs a few days yeah. ago. Yes, as we're recording And, and yeah. Paul Newman and Parnelli Jones. And then uh, Mario drove with um, Pete Conrad, who was the third man on the moon. Um, thinking about um, uh, Hugh Downs, he was the last one that we invited in the race. All these other guys, Pancho drag, had been drag racing. Dickie Smothers was uh, doing SCCA along with Pete Conrad. Uh, Conrad. We, I asked uh, around and said, is there any celebrity, you know, that uh, races? And they said, well, I heard that Hugh Downs does. And so um, we, I called him on the phone and I told him about this. And he said, my gosh, you, you want me to do that? And I said, yeah. And I said, it'll be a lot of fun. You know, it's, uh, it's going to be, you're going to have a celebrity pit crew, you know, the uh, film crew f- filming it. And it, it, it's really made to be entertainment and, and uh, you know, nothing really serious. And he said, well, I'd love to do that. So. He, he signed up, and on the day before the race, uh, my wife and I um, uh, picked him up. Uh, he and Ruth, his uh, wife, and we were driving to the speedway, and I said, well, Hugh, tell me about your racing background. And he said, uh, racing background? And I said, yeah, I understand that you've you know been involved a, a little bit in uh, some amateur racing. And he says, no. He says, I own a sport car. He says, I have an MG. Uh, but, but no, I haven't been racing. So I thought, oh, my God. And so uh, we spent, uh, you know, all our time focusing uh, Bob Bondron, who had his driving school there, uh, trying to get uh, Hugh uh, to drive. And we've got, we've, got, we've got video of him throwing up <laughs> in the corner before he got in the, in the car. And believe it or not, he finished third. And, uh, <laughs> 
So uh, uh, give me a sense then of how uh, the initial, uh, we're talking 1970 or 71? 1970. Okay. So what, uh, I, I give, give our audience a sense of like what races and circuits came first. I'm guessing it was IndyCar primarily, and but but you also wanted to, as many of the other circuits uh, to, to, to put uh, this new facility on their radar. I guess NASCAR came a little later, or how did no, that all I, sort of work? We had promised, I had financed this uh, in, in great part with public uh, tax-free municipal bonds, got a unique revenue ruling, uh, which also was utilized by some of the other tracks. And uh, we had uh, said in the uh, prospectus that our intention was to have the second largest uh, race in attendance for each of the four major categories of racing. And um, we succeeded in that. Uh, so following the, the California 500 drew 178,000 people. Um, that's the largest crowd uh, um, uh, next to the Indianapolis 500. And for 25 years, it was the largest of any stadium uh, you know, crowd, uh, you know, outside of a rock festival where they don't take attendance. It cost $25.5 million to turn a vineyard into a racetrack, and it was worth it. On Sunday, September 6, 1970, during the Labor Day weekend, the newest, most modern raceway in the world, the Ontario Motor Speedway, opened with the inaugural running of the California 500. California racing fans were eager for the thrills of Indianapolis-style competition. By 10 o'clock, a full hour before race time, the grandstands were full. A paid attendance of 180,223 spectators anxiously awaited the start of their first California 500. Ontario was patterned after Indianapolis with an identical two and one half mile track, but there are differences. Lloyd Ruby, who has driven more miles at Indianapolis than any other current driver, compared the tracks prior to his qualifying run. It is quite a bit different than the speedway, although you have four turns, the same straightaway, but here you have a little bit more bank coming off the turns and uh, through the short shoes, and it does hold the car a lot better, and that's the uh, reason it speeds up uh, quite a bit more than it did speed up. It was supposed to have been the same measurements and everything as Indianapolis, and uh, of course the distance is the same, but the banking in the turns is a little bit higher, and the pavement's a little different, and we get a little stickier condition, so uh, you can run faster. That's why you saw some pretty fast speeds this morning. When Lloyd Ruby qualified at uh, 177, of course, nobody's ever run that speed at Indy. And uh, then the we got Miller involved. We were the first, uh, uh, you know, people to start getting uh, sponsorship from consumer products. Marlboro sponsored our uh, unique timing and scoring system, which uh, was real time. Uh, Miller sponsored the 500-mile stock car race, which was the first low-bank car race and was the the race that convinced Tony Holman to do the Brickyard uh, at um, at Indianapolis. As they pound toward the finish, AJ has the lead and Baker passes Petty to take over second. On the 200th lap, AJ Foyt screams down the front chute eight seconds ahead of Buddy Baker to take the checkered flag. 25 cars failed to make the finish. Foyt's Mercury made victory lane. AJ picked up a check for $51,800, the trophy, and the checkered flag for the first annual Miller High Life 500 at Ontario Motor Speedway. And then Questor was a major conglomerate in the automotive parts business at that time, and, and they sponsored 
our Formula One race. And in the Formula One race, I finally got uh, the uh, Watkins Glen to agree to let us have the second one. And I got uh, the FIA in Paris to agree to sanction us on the understanding that would ra- we would uh, have a qualifying Formula One race uh, first. And then the next year would be the U.S. Grand Prix West. And um, that was not sponsored, uh, but uh, the drag race was a a huge, huge crowd, second only to the Indianapolis uh, Nationals uh, and Mattel uh, Hot Wheels uh, sponsored that. It was called the the Hot Wheels Supernatural. Each one of those races crowds was second uh, only to, uh, you know, the premier race of those four uh, categories. And, um, you know, we 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 delivered on what our challenge was. I mean, that, that that's amazing and, and true uh, validation, I guess, of not only the market research, but this idea, I guess, that uh, auto racing, right, was in different flavors uh, in many respects and probably hindsight, probably 2020 on the cusp of becoming much more uh, geographically uh, spread uh, nationally. Uh, attractive uh, and, you know, uh, with television and what beyond sort of either passion or regional or both roots. Yes. And, and, uh, and you mentioned television, which was, uh, which um, you know, we were one of the first races besides Indy and Daytona to go on TV and television was a big factor in the explosion of the sport thereafter. But it was the, you know, the, the continual building of super speedways and large speedways that um, had the suites and, the, and um, had the private clubs. And, and um, the, the, one, of the, one of my favorite innovations that we brought, which has propelled me for 30 years because it was the basis of my involvement in interactive television, was the timing and scoring system. Uh, one of the big things about neophytes uh, in automobile racing and even the hardcore fans is in those days, it was, the scoring was done virtually by hand. I mean, they had some IBM punch card computers, but as a result, uh, the standings were about 10 laps behind. If you ever went to Indianapolis, you know, up until uh, 19. 19- 72 or three, uh, you look at the pylons there and you look at the track and, and uh, the, the pylons would show a lap that was about 10 laps uh, behind. And um, we commissioned uh, to find a scoring system that would be in real time uh, that would display exactly uh, how the positions were all the way first to last um, in real time. And, and uh, um, we picked a company that had come up with a system that used transmitters on the cars buried antennas around the track uh, that uh, would, you know, uh, broadcast the data in real time out uh, to the scoring system, which would uh, display it around the track. And, and uh, that in the inaugural race uh, with uh, um, one of the closest finishes and the two number one and two cars passing one another three or four times, um, you know, in the last couple laps, um, that really kind of revolutionized the experience for the fan, and it, the system was quickly adopted by Formula One and then Indianapolis, and, uh, and now still is, uh, you know, at the core of, of real-time timing and scoring. So was it hard, easy, somewhere in between to get these sanctioned bodies of said versions of auto racing uh, to, to come to your brand-new facility? I, I have to think on many, on many levels – it was relatively easy and kind of a no-brainer, but I can't imagine they did it sort of uh, easily without sort of, I don't know, uh, 
some kind of business angle or two or three attached. Well, that's a, that's a chapter in, in, in my book, if I ever finished it. But, uh, Wally Parks, who is a prince of a man and a, and a genius and, uh, and, the, and the founder and owner of the National Hot Rod Association, uh, was the it was the easy guy. I mean, he said, that's a great idea. How can I help? And so forth. USAC, uh, 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 Tony Holman, uh, I had gotten to know Tony through, uh, uh, he, he attended the same prep school and college I did, and I was always dunning him for contributions. And then when I got involved in racing, I got to know him better. And I, I, I couldn't have built the, uh, the Speedway without his endorsement, uh, because he could have said, gee, I don't want to do that, or I don't want to be rivaled. Uh, but instead, he turned around and gave bricks and said, gentlemen, start your engines and all that. But Bill France and USAC were mortal enemies. Uh, USAC uh, wanted to have a 500-mile race uh, at uh, Indianapolis at some point in time, and they wanted the 500-mile race at Ontario. And um, Bill France did not trust me, uh, Bill France Jr. and Sr., and I took a th- literally a year of interfacing with them and at races and so forth, where we finally developed a relationship where he said, uh, shook my hand, he says, we'll do it. Um, but the hardest was uh, the complex nature of getting a Formula One race and, and getting Cam Argusinger, who was a great guy that had, had uh, many years put on the Watkins Glen Formula One race and getting the, the FIA in Europe to uh, to agree to give a second race. Uh, I spent a lot of time flying back and forth and using uh, celebrities like Kirk Douglas to warm up the, you know, the Europeans, but uh, it was, it was really a jigsaw puzzle and uh, probably uh, next to reassembling the land that had gotten subdivided uh, from the original project, the two most challenging things about uh, getting the thing up and going. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, the the, uh, the Formula One, the FIA uh, uh, sanctioning thing, I, that doesn't surprise me because it's European and there's a lot of sort of cultural sort of issues and there's only, you know, uh, uh, they don't want to sort of, I, I sort of, I think I understand that one a little, but what I find interesting, and again, hindsight is twenty twenty, that the Francis would give you, would give you some trouble. Uh, but I guess they were also, they were also probably maybe a little leery or worried or concerned about how their their sport, right, which they completely owned and, and controlled, would translate into what I'm guessing was a relatively foreign geography for them, uh, or, or, or certainly not uh, a solid one, uh, given the substantial southern uh, domicile and exposure. No, I, I, they had a, a, a growing presence in California, and I think they had a road race at, at uh, Riverside. It was really more a, a fact that with all of the Indy race car drivers and sports headliners and and uh, the, the Tony Holman um, you know, backing and and uh, the USAC as the um, uh, you know the um, linchpin sanction. Um, they just felt that I was going to eventually uh, give USAC the stock car race, and that would have been war. And um, it took me a, a long time, uh, and USAC expected that. I mean, they said, uh, "Well, now we're going to get the, you know, we're going to get the stock car race right, David. We give you the, you know, the sanction here." And I said, "Well, we'll talk about that one thing at a time." So, uh-huh. oh, so, so that's interesting because, and, and that, that's I was ignorance on my part, but the the, the and I, you mentioned it before, and I didn't pick up on it, but the the idea that that stock car racing was not the complete and ultimate domain of NASCAR per se. There was this potential and or in some cases maybe real competition uh, between them and USAC for conducting, running, and uh, maybe, if you will, controlling the 
uh, that uh, the stock car part of that sport uh, altogether. Well, I, I think that uh, USEC had an overblown uh, uh, idea of the uh, of the potential of them to penetrate uh, stock car racing, but it was at the top of their list, and you know, so that created that created a problem because they thought, "Wow, this uh, Ontario Motor Speedway could be our launching part uh, point for our stock car racing." And Bill France saw that, and uh, you know, felt that uh, that's what we were going to do, and didn't really take me seriously for a while. But we find, I find, he finally heard that I had said no. I was on the board of USAC, and I said no, we cannot do that. Our prospectus says a NASCAR race, and uh, you know I used that as the excuse as to why we had to have the NASCAR race. And give me a sense of what was it like when you were at that first NASCAR race, and you saw one of the Frances nearby, and you saw that gigantic crowd, second only to that of Daytona and maybe even Talladega, and and. A success by just about any measure. I mean, were you gloating or were you kind of biting your tongue or what? <laughs> well, I, it was it was really. Uh, I don't think I'll ever have another day in my life uh, like uh, the inaugural California 500 uh, and what where everything went right and clicked and, and came together after two years of you know nonstop work, but. The racing that I saw uh, and uh, that Bill France saw on the low bank oval, to me, uh, was much more exciting than than the high bank. And I I much prefer to watch the Brickyard uh, than I do the Daytona simply because it's a lot more challenging to the driver. Uh, you know, and there's a lot more sophistication, uh, you know, that goes into that kind of racing. And when Bill saw that... Um, he, you know, he said, you got to help me to convince Tony to, you know, to, to let us race at Indianapolis. And I was eventually able to do that. That's interesting. All right. So uh, at, before we sort of leave this part of the story, I, I want to call back uh, Evil Knievel because he was part of the 1970 <laughs> slash early 71 kind of part of it, too. Explain to me what this was. It was a manufactured event, I guess, like other venue owners and operators, uh, you were always on the lookout for, although you had a full slate coming out of the gate for sure, but you were certainly, I'm sure, very aware of and interested in other events to fill dates in between races. So, Well, uh, what happened there was that uh, I had signed Evil up to do a, a movie with George Hamilton um, in, in, called Evil Evil, where George played uh, Evil, and uh, he, uh, they needed a, a climactic jump uh, at the end, uh, that would be a world record breaking. And uh, Evil and I got, you know, Evil started, I, I can't take uh, uh, credit for this, started pestering me to say, why why can't we um, uh, have this at the Ontario Motor Speedway before one of your races? And so um, we, we finally said, gee, you know, we could, we could promote this as a separate event, uh, not charge a, a lot. You have uh, time trials, uh, you know, and, and uh, then uh, have the, have a large crowd there, uh, watch Evil try to break the world record. I forget what it was, 13 buses or something like that at the Ontario Motor Speedway. So we kind of added that on uh, after the you know the race was scheduled and uh, promoted it separately. And and Galdarn, if we didn't uh, draw a huge crowd uh, for um, you know for a, a non-racing event, and um, if you if you see that movie, you'll see that that he. That he drew a, drew a huge crowd, and he made the jump. You know, uh, you, you, the thing about evil was, I always said, he 
he was not the, the greatest motorcycle jumper in the world, but he was the only guy that would jump a second time after he had a crash because the other guys retired. And that was the secret to his success was that he, there was some danger when he jumped. Yeah. And, and, um, I mean, that, that evil can evil is a whole nother to your point, uh, set of yeah, sportsmen, showmen, hustler, uh, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's probably a whole sort of, uh, and not, and, yeah, <laughs> and not sanctioned per se. It wasn't sort of, you know, you say official world record, like, well, what, you know, the, the definition of that's, you know, there's no league or any sort of sanctioned <laughs> body, right? No, he would, he, he would just, um, he would keep adding a car or a bus and, you know, and then promote it until he ran out of um, uh, the distance that he could jump, which was at Wembley, where he almost killed himself. And that's when the, the canyon jump um, became, uh, you know, his goal. You know, he, that was a completely different kettle of fish and a way to change the game, in effect. All right. Well, let's let's uh, shift into fourth gear here, because uh, uh, shortly after uh, the launch and, and uh, you know, uh, the, the just sheer uh, determination of getting Ontario up and running and 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 very successful in its first year and a half, two years, uh, you segued out of uh, of the corporation. Uh, maybe a little bit of background as to sort of how and why uh, I'm going to guess maybe it's because you're more of the sort of entrepreneurial starter startup type versus the day-to-day, bigger corporation operational type. Um, but I, that's, that's an assumption. And then I well, guess the second, que- the second question, I guess, is how we segue into IROC. But let me, answer, let, me right. let you answer that first one first, because I think I, I see where the seeds of IROC sort of come from here, I think. You got it. Um, well, the answer to your first question is that, that I, um, I, I love sports and I, 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 and I love starting and testing uh, new companies. I mean, uh, having... Having um, done sports headliners and then the Ontario Motor Speedway, the bug of uh, trying to find a new consumer area, hopefully uh, somewhat related uh, to sports, uh, had had bitten me. And at the same time, I didn't want to spend uh, the rest of my life in automobile racing. Uh, To be honest with you, the immersion uh, in it, uh, first with the drivers and then uh, with the speedway and my growing identification with it, um, just didn't strike me as something that I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. And, and um, like all things uh, that I did uh, in this regard, I kind of quit cold turkey. I, um, I, I, I uh, resigned after the first full year, as I said I would, but it w- was uh, not a happy resignation in that uh, w- while I left on schedule, the, the board uh, and I disagreed on who should be my successor uh, you know, so um, I, I completely kind of uh, cut my uh, ties with it and sold my stock and, and, and moved on. The last remaining thing that I did in automobile racing is is what you're referring to, which, which was IROC. And as you can hear from uh, the evolution of the celebrity race, uh, it, it really uh, was crystallized in, in my mind about the time I was thinking of the, uh, of the celebrity race that this really needs to be taken uh, to you know, real racing, and uh, you know, determine who who the best driver is, um, uh, because the car is such a major part of uh, winning an automobile racing. You know, it's forty percent uh, or so or, or more. So um, the idea of uh, of IROC was uh, you know kind of fully developed when I left, and and I took it to ABC, and I took it to Roger Penske. 
to be a partner and uh, become the kind of the host of it and wrote up a detailed format and a point structure and all of the things that you you see in uh, in Iraq and um, ABC is uh, indicated they want to do it but we missed the timetable uh, for the 71 season and just couldn't get it together it takes a long lead time and so as uh, as they were putting together uh, you know I got um, you know a Porsche, Porsche uh, thanks to the success of the celebrity race to um, agree to, you know, put up the, the first set of cars and, and uh, you know, prepare them identically. And all the things that you see in Iraq were, were in place. And uh, to disappoint you, I, I, I really didn't have much to do with it thereafter. I sold uh, my um, uh, copyrights and interest in the format and, and um, you know, my position, you know, with, uh, with uh, the upcoming um, um, following year on ABC uh, to uh, Les Richter and, and Roger um, Penske and uh, they hired Jay Signori uh, to run it. And, you know, and I went on uh, ultimately to uh, create um, using the technology that was the heart of the timing and scoring system at Ontario uh, to develop the wireless technology up in Silicon Valley that ultimately, you know, got us into interactive television. Yeah, I, 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 I'm certainly aware of, of sort of how it sort of played out. I, I just I'm really curious as to sort of how the idea uh, germinated, uh, obviously the celebrity thing. But um, I, I, I'd have to think that because of your unique perch, right, in, in getting this uh, amazing new uh, large and substantial facility up and running under the aegis of, of uh, trying to be, I want to say all things to all circuits, right? But but being a friendly track to all of these major circuits, right? Almost, uh, it gave you sort of a, a, I want to say unfair advantage, but certainly an insight, right? Into the commonality, the similarities, and yet the disparities amongst these different approaches to racing. And then I, I guess I'm just really curious, uh, as an entrepreneur, how you how you sort of synthesize that to Put to, how do you even ideate sort of what a quote unquote competition might look like, even though you were not part of it down the road, so to speak? I'm just curious as to how do you like, for example, I here, here's the other question around that. Maybe you can sort of answer why not. Maybe if you're thinking of uh, other approaches to to racing uh, that might be attractive to audiences, both television and, and in person, why not, for example, a uh, a team slash league approach? That's maybe domiciled in different cities, not unlike other professional sports, ah, right? Ah, um, yeah. I'm just curious as to how you ideate this and how do you know that you've got something even to shop around, let alone, you know, not, not having run it later on. But, you know, how and why did it, had it come about? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I hadn't thought about it until you were talking right then. But, but um, so, as I may have said um, Early on, when we started Sports Headliners, I started thinking about how we could bring the drivers more to the fore and, and expose their personalities with the helmets off, uh, because at that time they they really weren't. And and so I was thinking about what could we could do that uh, would be a stage for television race uh, that would uh, bring out the, the the drivers' personalities. And then uh, you know that kind of was a ticking in the back. And then when we got to, um, uh, the what are we going to do to you know uh, inaugurate the track? 
the pro-am golf and things like that as a golfer, you know, played in those and enjoyed those. And at the same time, uh, and, and it's interesting because you're right, I'm thinking about dealing with all these different kinds of drivers and in, in the Quester Grand Prix, was billed as the deal, the duel between the European drivers, who were all the Formula One drivers, and the Formula 5000 drivers, who were the European road, uh, the American road racing champions. So you had, you know, Dan Gurney and Swede Savage, and and you know, and uh, the American uh, drivers, and Jackie Stewart, and and um, and Mario Andretti got his first Formula One ride there. So the you know, argument was, well, who, we our, our our PR campaign for that one was, you know. Uh, like the rumble in the jungle, who was, who was the best? And uh, we used the drivers saying that we're going to kick their butts and so forth and so on. So the idea of, of um, uh, identical cars so that you equal the field, drivers from different backgrounds, uh, you know, different skill sets, uh, racing in a series um, uh, of races uh, against one another was, you know, pretty easy. And then you, I, you just started to, to think about, okay, what are the rules got to be like? How, how you got to produce it? How do you, you know, how do you have to stage it? Uh, what are the elements that you need kind of uh, drove themselves to, you know, what IROC was. So it, it was just kind of a, a slow evolution over a two, two and a half, three year period of these various, um, you know, thoughts percolating. Uh, they made it kind of just uh produce itself to me. I, I think in hindsight, it seems rather obvious. We're in the Irish hills of the state of Michigan, some 70 miles southwest of Detroit at Michigan International Speedway. The occasion is the fifth renewal of the International Race of Champions. Good afternoon, I'm Jim McKay, and what once again is the International Race of Champions? Well, it kind of has its origins, and the idea that motor racing, although one of the most exciting sports in the world, in many ways is one of the most frustrating and that's because to a great extent the man is slave to the machine if the greatest driver in the world doesn't have the proper mount underneath him he's simply not going to win so people have been talking for years they say suppose however you could get say a dozen of the greatest drivers in the world from the indianapolis cars from the stock cars from the grand prix circuits of the world bring them together and put them in identically prepared machines who would be the winner well that's the idea here there will be a series again this year as there have been on the other four occasions, of four races. One here at Michigan International today on the 18-degree high banking, two on the road course at Riverside in California, and the final race on the high-banked trioval at Daytona in Florida. Twelve drivers, as we said, drawn from around the world. They'll compete on a point basis, 21 points for first, 17 for second, so on down the line to a single point for 12th place. Was it television, though, that kind of the end goal. I mean, you're sort of, cause you know, I remember, and again, some of this might have been your original idea. Some of it might've been after the fact, after you uh, uh, sold it off and, and moved on, but you know, the different color cars and the, I, it seems to me like, and I, I remember growing up as a kid, right? These, these were tape delayed or, 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 and then heavily edited, right? So it wasn't, these weren't even live uh, races and stuff, I guess. Um, I, I'm wondering, did you think that, when did you know that this idea had some potential beyond just an idea. I mean, because it seems like it not only requires a lot of cooperation from three or four uh, uh, sanctioning bodies, some of which are diametrically opposed to each other, right? Number one. And number two, uh, I got to think that timing too, right? Scheduling and and circuits and all that kind of stuff was also a beast to handle, let alone get them to come together for two or three races over a period of time for any semblance of a championship. 
Well, I, I think that the, 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 the guys that launched it, you, you got to tip their hat to it because, uh, you know, they produced it just the way I, that I had imagined it. And they did a fabulous job and they continued to do so. Uh, I think that the, the, the one of the major things was really the, the initial ability to uh, get a, a, a supplier of uh, identical cars. It wound up that they had to pay a fortune, uh, you know, to move from this car to uh, make a car to to another but uh, it, it really jump-started them when uh, Porsche came on aboard uh, in, in the initial part we had uh, brightly colored different seven different colored cars at the celebrity race uh, so that uh, you know fans could really tell them apart um, to me you know it, it it's all in the execution uh, of something like that I mean the building the track um, uh, to be able to rise uh, to its full potential is one thing but you gotta you gotta sell out you gotta market you gotta uh, you know you gotta uh, deliver the entertainment experience and and uh, that that is the there were some interruptions and some down years uh, in the international race of champions but from the time of the first race and uh, in, in 72, I think, in, 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 until it shut down in, in 2004 or something, it ran longer than the wide world of sports a number of, uh, you know, number of years that was on television. So that's, that's really a testament to the fact that it was a, it was a great concept. Well, um, and obviously you went on to 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 other uh, entrepreneurial efforts in and around data, both you know directly related to the sporting thing, but also you know its a pl- application to to other things like in finance and trading and that and that kind of stuff. But let me ask you this, sort of maybe as a as we round uh, the the f- turn four, shall we say, to strain an analogy. Um, given very that, uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, please tip your servers. Uh, but wh- when you're um, as you look back on this racing thing, right, and obviously, you know, it's very much in hindsight, you know, you, you were a- absolutely a pioneer on a lot of different levels, right, and, and a lot of different sort I mean, I, I hear elements of today's, you know, NASCAR all-star races. I hear elements of, you know, I hear lots of different elements of things, you know, the safer barriers. I mean, all these things sort of that just kind of commonplace and or uh, just generally accepted or assumed now, right? So, uh, as we sort of hinted at in our the, the, starting this conversation, right? You know, pioneers uh, tend to get arrows in the back, right? Because they're usually the first ones sort of around this kind of idea or these ideas before they sort of gain steam and or you know maybe the financial benefits down the road. What were there any other um, during this period of time your auto racing uh, exposure and experiences? Did you, were there any other ideas that you sort of had percolating that never got off the ground or just sort of were stuck in the uh, in the sketchbook, so to speak, right? I, I just threw out that flyer of an idea and I'm guessing it didn't stick or wasn't even a, a concept, but I, I just wonder why there has never been, or if there ever was, I, I think I remember reading, there may have been an attempt or a discussion about it, but you know, a team-based city-based kind of league kind of structure. Were, were there any other sports ideas outside of auto racing that perhaps your auto uh, experiences were uh, tantalizing you with that you just kind of never either vetted or, had the wherewithal or the time, frankly, or the energy to pursue, or was I'll this pretty much just it? What a question! I, there, there is something that I'm not, I've never t- talked about, or you know, very few people know about. That, All right, we're going to break that, break some news here. This is cool. Yeah, we love this. Um, I had an idea um, um, in between uh, the um, leaving uh, Ontario Motor Speedway and going up and starting uh, data broadcasting for what I called the World Sportathlon. 
And uh, my idea was to determine who the, who the greatest uh, athlete in the United States was at multiple sports. And uh, my concept was uh, very much like you said, the franchise it by state. Uh, and uh, the sports uh, were individual sports, obviously, like uh, uh, golf, tennis, bowling, uh, billiards, uh, swimming, um, et cetera. I, I'm forgetting some, uh, some of them, uh, four or five. And, and, and the, I, uh, the concept was that any, it was open to anybody. In other words, if you were a professional golfer, if you were Tiger Woods, you could enter this. You'd probably win the golf, but you know, how good were you at the other sports? And uh, I had thought about it uh, and, uh, you know, how it would be franchised, how you would, uh, you know, go at the local level and then to the state level and then you would, you know, finally compete. Um, the superstars came about three years after this uh, idea I had and, and, and got at it with a little bit with professional sports. But it was going to be something that I saw involving millions of, of uh, people. Uh, and, and it was uh, it was. Um, one of the impetus uh, for it was uh, um, I had two or three friends that uh, were just good at every sport. They, they, they never made the varsity uh, at anything, but, uh, you know, it didn't matter whether it was tennis, uh, golf, swimming, uh, or whatever, they were just good. And um, so I, I, I got Gerald Ford. I called Gerald Ford after he uh, had um, – left office and had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him and talked him into being the commissioner of this. And I got uh, Wendy's, uh, you know, uh, looking at putting their name on it. And, and it was all put together. And uh, while I was, uh, you know, it's still a long way to go, but while that was happening, the financing came through for, for data broadcasting, which was the, you know, the stock market device thing that, that became very successful that I had been working on simultaneously. And it was just a, a situation of having to take the bird in the hand. And I'll never forget having to call President Ford and tell him, and he was really uh, you know, disappointed and sad. He said, gee, gosh, I was looking forward to that. But that, <laughs> I don't know how you pulled that out of me, but that, that is exactly, I think, what you were talking about. That, that was a stillborn idea uh, that I had. Who knows whether it would have worked, um, but uh, that one didn't make it. So that's really interesting on a couple of different levels. Number one, that sounds like, I'm guessing what you just described, there would have been sort of, I guess, a, a pro level as well as a more amateur and or participatory level. Yeah. No, my idea was the excitement of it would be that it was open. Oh, open. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and so, so if, and it would have a huge prize and, and it would be a lot of fun. And so if you were a, a, a champion at any one of those sports, you'd say, well, I, I'm going to win X number of points in that sport. And I'm also a damn good ping pong player or a tennis player or, you know, or in a swim and on a quarter mile or what, you know, I forget the, the sports I had. I don't think I had 10 uh, individual sports, but they were all uh, sports that there were tens and hundreds of millions of uh, people that were at the amateur level. And, and I just, you know, like uh, the international race of champions, which was, you know, at the seeds of this, who is the greatest all round athlete? In, in the United States or in the world. You know, it could have gone worldwide after that uh, to answer that question. That's very interesting. And, then, and did you take umbrage to when the superstars kind of got going as a sort of a, I don't know, a, a, a stolen idea, so to speak? I mean, did you not care or were you flattered by the, the similarities, I guess? 
Oh, I, 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 I watched it with great interest. I, I, you know, that's interesting. I can't remember what I felt about it. I, 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 I felt that that's not it. I mean, I, I, but I felt that the, since it was drawing an audience and got on television, that it, that it had some interest. But you were still watching, you know, it wasn't answering my question was, uh, you know, who's the greatest driver when the cars are equal, uh, you know, from all of these different things, and who's the greatest athlete, uh, all-around athlete. Um, in individual sports. Well, I mean, look, Dave, that, 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 that's, it, this is fascinating. I mean, I, in many respects, uh, this is a, 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 a highly intriguing and, and fully discoverable conversation because, uh, as, uh, as I alluded to, I don't think our audience yet knows, uh, you and I were connected originally from my uh, proverbial day job in the advertising and media and technology spaces. And, you know, all your other endeavors, things like interactive television, all those kind of things, everything old is new again. Um, but to, to stumble into uh, your, I, let's call it a previous life, I guess. I mean, you were uh, sort of a, a, a sportsman pioneer. And uh, I, God forbid, a, a few of our audience members, and, and we're just shocked at, at how widespread the audience of this little show has become, uh, might be a little bit more uh, introduced and or aware of uh, some of those contributions. Because uh, I, I think as time goes on, uh, we kind of maybe take uh, for granted uh, some of these things. I mean, you know... Uh, setting up Ontario and, and, and bringing auto racing to a sort of a new level and, and what, what became of IROC. And frankly, maybe why not stuff like IROC again? And, and you know, uh, Lord knows that uh, sports is challenged right now for a lot of different reasons. But, um, uh, you know, in some respects, uh, some of these ideas uh, are, are living on today. And uh, God forbid you get some credit for it, for God's sakes. Well, I've, I've had a lot of fun doing them, I'll tell you that. And, uh, you know, um, your 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 memories and your experiences are really what's dear uh, when you get to be a senior citizen like mine and so um, like me and and so um it's it's been a lot of fun and I appreciate uh, your uh, letting me relive this <laughs> a lot of the stuff I haven't thought about in a long time. Well, I'm sorry to drag up the memories, but I guess one last question I'll ask you is uh, what of the state of sports today and maybe you know with the idea of of uh, you know. Uh, television and video and over-the-top streaming and, and uh, this sort of gnawing, never seemingly dissipating idea of interactivity with data and stats and internet connectivity and mobile devices and stuff. I mean, I guess it's a two-part question to, to, to round it out. What, what do you think of sports on a professional and, and televised level? And does interactivity and data and, and all that kind of stuff have a role finally this time to be a more mainstream kind of activity? Uh, in its consumption for the average consumer? I think I know. Well, the I, th I think that question has been asked and answered. Uh, what, what you see uh, in uh, Europe uh, with uh, the introduction of what they call in-play or in-running uh, wagering, which is basically what we invented uh, at Interactive Network, but we did it as a game of skill where you're predicting uh, what's going to happen uh, before the next pitch or the snap of the ball has grown uh, from zero uh, in 2014 to compromise 85% of all sports betting. Uh, it's on mobile or live sports betting. And that's that's over $600 billion worldwide, you know, $210 billion out of, um, of England and uh, the European countries. Uh, so that's, that's uh, you know, two-thirds of the, of the population at some point or another have got their cell phone in their hand and they're watching their soccer or their tennis matches over there. Um, 
the 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 industry here has just got going and is just uh, was working on translating what they've learned and, and delivering that to the European market for American sports uh, when uh, COVID hit. And uh, you know, but um, the the results have been spectacular in where it's been done in uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania with FanDuel, DraftKings, and so forth, and the take up of that. So. Um, that's one thing that I feel gratified by because I've been saying uh, and been wrong, uh, you know, that it was just around the corner since, uh, <laughs> you know, 1990, you know, and uh, and now it's here. And, uh, you know, it, it got slowed down a little bit in the United States. But once once uh, we're back to normal, you're going to see it really take off, I think. All right, that was a hell of a lot of fun, and uh, I hope not the last of our auto racing exploits. Uh, in particular, IROC, we'd love to get into the actual uh, particulars and the ups and downs of actually uh, these 30 races uh, that actually were run from 73 to, I want to say 2005, 2006 or so. Uh, a couple of gaps in between, and I'm sure all kinds of uh, changes. I know the, uh, the, the chassis and the, the autos, used, changed, sponsors came and went. Uh, there were different broadcasters of such and uh, love to get into that. Uh, maybe Roger Penske someday or, or some of the other principles involved in in taking this concept that uh, Dave put together uh, and bringing it uh, into life. Uh, lots more, hopefully, to uh, uncover in future episodes. And, um, uh, we, uh, you know, just all kinds of uh, uh, fun stuff to, uh, to get uh, more involved with uh, in the uh, sport of auto racing. And we look forward to it. Uh, we appreciate not only you listening to this week's episode, but if you enjoyed the proceedings, how about uh, giving our other 172 episodes uh, a whirl? Uh, there's got to be a sport or a team or a league or something in there. Uh, and we keep adding more each and every week. So uh, if we haven't found something you like yet, uh, stay tuned because there will likely be something that will uh, tickle your fancy for sure. But if you want to get a, a, a graze a little and uh, kind of to see all the other great stuff that we've done, uh, over the years now, almost four years, why not uh, hop over to GoodSeatStillAvailable.com and check out any of those episodes that you might like. You can just search up on our little search bar there, whatever uh, tickles your fancy, and uh, see if uh, we've uh, covered something uh, either directly or peripherally. They're all there for you. You can share them. You can stream them. Do whatever you want. Uh, why not just add them to your uh, latest podcast feeds uh, or whatever device you uh you uh, capture podcasts on while well, just uh, follow us and or subscribe. That certainly helps. And while, while you're doing that, uh, if you can leave a, a rating or a review, especially a five-star one, wink, wink, nod, nod, we'd appreciate that too. That helps other people uh, like you or maybe not even like you uh, discover the show uh, if they uh, hadn't found out about it already. Uh, we appreciate that for sure. But a good seat still available.com. That's the locus for all of this uh the, f the festivities that we have for you each and every week. If you want to follow us on uh, our social media feeds, you can do that. We're at, on Twitter. You can follow us at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you'll find a little Facebook page devoted to us. Just, you know, whatever you want to follow us on, go for it. Uh, we're there for you. If you want to send us some email, go ahead. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, if you want to get our weekly email newsletter, find out what we're going to be covering uh, the, the upcoming week's episode. Uh, you can do that. Just uh, find a little link uh, there on our website. Again, at Good Seats Still Available. 
Shirts.com. Uh, uh, we want to thank, uh, let's see, P.F. Wilson, our pal at OldSchoolShirts.com. Thank you very much for having us on uh, on your podcast. You can find a link to that on our, our website. But uh, that's a P.F.'s tape recorder. If you uh, want to check out this week's uh, or last week's, I guess, as we drop this episode, episode, uh, he was kind enough to have us there. And we had a, a hoot uh, talking about uh, the uh, the origin story of this little show. And uh, we appreciate P.F. and, of course, OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, put a plug in for them, too, because they're one of our great sponsors. Uh, we've got a promo code there. It's Good Seats. 10% off all of your purchases there. Get uh, get yourself a shirt or 10 uh, using that discount. And, of course, we want to thank our pal Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence. Uh, he's the main uh, guy to put all of our pieces together. He's uh, an editor and producer extraordinaire. And uh, with uh, his help, we uh, get this show up and running each and every week. We uh, tip our cap to Jerry as we do each and every week at this time. And uh, we, of course, uh, bow humbly in your general direction for listening not only this far, but uh, for giving us all kinds of love and support, uh, especially in today's challenging times. Hopefully we gave you a little distraction and uh, more good stuff to come here on the little showgram. Appreciate your listening. Until next week, we will uh, see you down the road. Until then, take care, everybody. Bye bye. <laughs>